Hello everyone, welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're glad you are joining us today. A Reason for Hope, in case this is your first time with us, is an hour live broadcast which is guided along by your questions on the Bible. We have multiple online platforms where we're streaming live. You can send in your Bible questions and we have guests here who just love the Word, love the Lord, love to um, help you navigate your Bible questions. And so if you have questions on your heart, uh, maybe there's a verse or passages of scripture that you've read it's kind of confusing to you you wonder what it means how it applies to your life um, maybe something you're going through you'd like a, a biblical perspective on a decision you're trying to make or trying to even minister to someone else and would like to, some verses to be equipped uh, maybe other worldviews and religions as well how they relate to the to the bible and christianity really anything along those lines as long as it's an honest and sincere question we certainly appreciate that and as long as you know that our answers are going to come from the Bible, not to our uh, thoughts or opinions as much as what the Bible says as accurately as we possibly can with the Lord's help. That's what we're here to do on A Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I'm your host today. I'll be with you on all those platforms. I'll go over those in a moment just so you know different ways to join us with us today. Sometimes the host, but today the guest. We have Adrian Van Vactor. How are you doing today? I'm good. Adrian is a award-winning world-renowned illusionist uses his gifts to share the gospel goes to places in the world where there's so-called you know real magic mm, <laughs> witchcraft yeah. and such um sometimes reproduces what they do as an illusion and then shares the gospel kind of yeah. crazy aren't you yeah i'm, in a, I'm getting all <laughs> sorts of trouble <laughs> <laughs> yes you are we're yeah. very glad to have debunker. you. Debunker. I like, I like that term. I like to debunk. <laughs> it's a debunk. Debunking things. Debunk. Yeah. An author as well. And uh, also hangs out around here. Helps with all that tech stuff and website things. And um, but also man of the Lord. Man of the word. Loves the word. Loves to teach it. Apologetics and stuff. But anyway, enough about you. But my brain can't keep up with the modern trends of... Ah, it's just too much. I, I, if I could read, read every day, all day, I still would not be able to process and respond to every single thing that people think yeah. <laughs> about the Bible. <laughs> it's true. Mm. It's true. And we have access to all those things as well. So, well, Adrian, thank you for being being here. Uh, you're often a host, but today you're a guest on the panel. Also with us, Pastor Sean Richards as well, as usual. How are you doing today? Good. Happily uh, seeing temperatures rise, but if the forecast tells us anything, that will be a very temporary condition because I'm not ready for spring yet. No, I'm not either. Mm -hmm. It has. It's gone up uh, it's gone up a lot. I even wore shorts the other day in winter. It's very bizarre. I wore shorts yeah. today. Yeah. Yesterday, I was just depressed. This can't be happening already. Right. It's not even officially February yet. Yep, up in the 70s, but it's kind of nice. Nice to get outside. But uh, yeah, we're here in, in Tucson, Arizona. That's where we're based at Calvary Christian Fellowship. That's where we are broadcasting from. I can tell you a little bit more about our ministry here. Um, so you know where to find us. Reason for Hope is a, a ministry in outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. As I mentioned, we're near Princeton I-10 on the west side of the freeway. Should you want to come and check us out there, you're more than welcome to do that. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. You can get more information right there. If you go to that Watch Live tab, it will take you out to our live page where we're streaming right now. You can sign in with the username and send your question in on the chat function. I'll be right there with you. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next event. You'll also see um, a schedule of upcoming events as well. Uh, you can go directly there, ccftucson.online.church. Literally type that into your browser, ccftucson.online.church. 
will take you right to that live page as well or follow the link from calvarychristianfellowship.com. We're live on Facebook as well. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook, facebook.com slash TCF Tucson. We are live there. You can send your question in on the chat function and the comments on the video, and I will be receiving those, Lord willing, as well. We have an app for your mobile device, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you go to your uh, app store, you can download us on your mobile device and watch us there. Send your question in through that method as well. And we also have a channel on Roku and Apple TV. So if you go to your channel store, you can add us as a channel and watch us on your big screen. We are live on YouTube. Look for A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Um, our site has uh, changed our address, youtube.com slash at a reason for hope, the letter, uh, sorry, number four there, a reason for hope. Uh, but just look for A Reason for Hope on YouTube. You'll find us, I'm sure. It's a great place for uh, archives as well. That live tab, whenever we've been live, it will archive there for us. So you can catch up on past shows. If there's one you want to rewatch or you miss something, we upload other content as well to YouTube. So check us out, Reason for Hope. Don't forget to like and subscribe and click the notification bell uh, should you want to get notified when we are live. Same on Facebook. I don't think I mentioned. We'd appreciate it if you would like and share. Share us around your circles. We'd appreciate that. Our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, Pastor Scott Richards, he's not with us today, but he is on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Scott R4H, Scott, letter R, number four, letter H, on X. You can follow along with him. He posts daily about uh, things going on in the world and then the news as it pertains to um, end times, biblical prophecy, that kind of thing. So follow along with Scott Richards on Twitter. We upload videos to Rumble. We're not live on Rumble, but uh, uh, Rumble, uh, a reason for hope, Bible Q&A. If you're using the Rumble platform, we have video content and archives there as well for you. And our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope, spelled out at gmail.com. You're welcome to send us uh, your question there as well. Uh, welcome if you're listening to us on the radio, Reach Radio or another radio affiliate. Do drive safely if you're on your drive time. Keep in mind that you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded. At the end of our show, we upload those for the radio the next day, so you're kind of a day behind. But those other platforms, we are live as can be. So you might want to keep that email address in mind, questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you're a radio listener, send your questions in and we'll try and get to that on our next show. Well, however you're joining us, we are glad you're there. Please do send in your questions. Uh, the whole show today will be um, dedicated to your Bible questions, so we have plenty of time for the next 51 minutes to navigate your questions. So do send them in. I'll be checking all those platforms in just a moment here to see what we've got coming on in. But before we go any further, we'd love to pause and pray. Um, Adrian, would you like to pray for us today? Sure. Yeah, that'd be, be great. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity to... Uh, engage with those who uh, are not here with us but um, are here with us online and who desire to know you better or to discover truth or to be an honest skeptic whatever it may be help give us the right words to be honest and transparent about um, what you revealed and to not um, you know censor in the sense that uh, we're being careful not to offend so just give us the right words the right attitude Lord uh, be with us here today as we as we attempt to uh, be reasonable and to be salt and light in a lost world. We pray mm -hmm. this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, we certainly want to do that. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, once again, send your questions in. I'll be uh, 
scanning <clears throat> over all those platforms and throw your questions out to our guests today. But we had a question come in through our email address, questionsforhope.gmail.com from David. And um, I haven't had a chance to read over it yet. Sean, just before the show, let me know. We had an email there. But I think to sum the question up, it was uh, when and how teachings between uh, Catholicism and Protestantism, Protestants, uh, when did that start to differ? Is that right? Is that about a good summing up of that, Sean? We will find out from the questioner. The uh, concern is obviously and specifically on the Eucharist. He gave an example. Um, this is a quote from, I believe it was Irenaeus. Um, let me get through this here. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ who suffered for our sins and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. So the idea is, and this is a specific one, if we as Christians differ from the way Christians a lot smarter, a lot older, and most importantly, a lot closer to the culture and perspectives of the original Christians, those who were eyewitnesses to what the definitions of Christianity really were and could have those verified by Jesus, why is it that we're reading more into our denominations, our culture, instead of the traditions that were handed down by me, as they would reference Paul out of context? So the concern is, to answer the question directly, when did Catholic traditions start to differ from Protestant ones? Well, Protestantism, the protesting of Catholic errors and misrepresentations of Scripture, obviously came after the errors themselves. So Protestants differed from Catholics because they recognized they were teaching something different from the Bible. When it comes to the Eucharist in particular, we can get more into that in a moment. The doctrine of transubstantiation is a fun one. It's obviously a big word, and that makes a lot of people excited, but it's essentially this mystical view that the body and blood of Jesus are literally physically manifested when a priest blesses the bread wafer, basically, and the wine in the context of a Roman Catholic Mass, and that only by partaking of these physical elements do we fulfill Jesus' statement in John chapter 6. I won't mention the verse because they want you to skip certain ones, that this is my body and this is my blood. My blood is drink indeed, my body is food indeed, and if you do not eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you do not have eternal life. Our response naturally would be the chapter doesn't end there, and Jesus goes on to specifically specifically say, my words are spirit, <laughs> but if we're talking about this issue, it's obviously going to involve a lot of different things. The three main issues for the Protestant Reformation, and you can read more about this in um, overviews of church history, many, of course, without uh, prior commitments, will be objective in the information they report, pro-Catholic or otherwise. They'll note that some of the objections, the most prominent of which were the 99 Theses of Martin Luther, who he himself was a Catholic, wasn't seeking to separate from Roman Catholicism, but to get people back to what the Bible actually taught, because he believed, like anyone else would have at that time, that the Catholic or the universal church was just simply the body of like-minded people, the church, who agreed on who Jesus was and how he proved himself in history. And ultimately, when the Roman 
Catholic Church, started to make a more political identity for itself, a function that had basically been left devoid in Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire, and, and to no fault of their own, by the way. In fact, I bear some responsibility to this surreptitiously because my ancestors from the north, Muslims from the south, Huns from the east, it was a big mess. The only uniting force in government was the fact that the majority of Europeans were Christian, and so that became the pseudo-governing body. And governments had to do what governments need to do. They need to enforce laws, they need to establish martial law, they need to fund militaries, they of course need to gather taxes. But instead of taxes, they called it tithing, and then tied into your taxes salvation because they were naturally still trying to function as both church and government. That was one of the things that Luther was asking questions about. Another issue was they would advertise these things in the form of indulgences. They would say that, well, you can give more to the church and provide funding for our building projects and so forth, a role of government, and say, well, uh, you can buy this indulgence and say these prayers and so forth, and therefore have a preemptive confession and getting out of the mortal and venial consequences of sin, also words not found in the Bible. This was leaving what eventually became the Protestants throwing up their arms and going, where is this in Scripture? And their rallying cries were sola scriptura, Scripture alone, sola fide, sola faith alone, sola uh, Deus gloria, for the glory of God alone. And I believe uh, one other that's escaping me, it would be sola, can you help me out here? I. Which one did you mention already? <laughs> sola faith, sola scripture, sola glory of God, and sola one other. We'll, we'll, we'll meditate on that. Sola because, one other, yeah. we'll call it yeah. that. But um, these, were the th the, these are the things that they found lacking in the Roman Catholic traditions, and that's where ultimately the lines and differences came. Now, at the basically dawning of the Renaissance and the end of the Dark Ages, when Christians were able to start to function again despite Muslim assaults on the ports, we had to essentially get back to the roots of what Christianity actually was because it was getting confused and muddled with a political entity that was created out of necessity rather than out of sound doctrine. And political powers being what they were, didn't want to give it up that easily, so they started to convene councils that anathematized, or literally condemned to hell, anyone who denied not just scripture, but their traditions. And they even started to distort and add to uh, apocryphal text to the canon of scripture 1,500 years after the fact, in order to justify things like indulgences, like purgatory, like prayers to saints and relics and so forth. So the differentiation largely came at that point, but it wasn't the Catholics differing from the Protestants. The Protestants started getting back to Scripture, and the Catholics tried to stay behind. Now, that's not the case for every Roman Catholic out there. You need to ask them if they affirm Trent, Vatican II, and the Council, or the... Uh, uh, everything's escaping me now because I feel alone up here. The What's the uh, collection of um, Roman Catholic documents before Vatican II? It's the, um, not the Rudder, that was the Council of Nicaea and the various early councils. The, again, uh, just to stay true to the topic and focus, because church history isn't my strong suit. 
When we're talking to people about this, though, and they want to argue early church father said such and such, or early church father affirmed this, so why don't you? We've talked about this before in the broadcast, and I think it's worth repeating. If someone in history, be it recent history like Chuck Smith or ancient history like Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John himself, we can look at their opinions, and as the Spirit led them, regard it with about as much the same authority. I trust their walk with God. I've considered their words in alignment with Scripture, and therefore I'm going to take it as a sound handling. But these people can, in fact, be wrong. So when the Roman Catholic Church put forward, and this is one of their solas, sola ecclesia, that apart from the church leadership or the church authority, you have no grounding in Scripture, despite the fact they haven't infallibly interpreted any passage with the exception of one in Matthew in the last 300 years. We need to be able to exercise our own discernment and say, okay, Polycarp said that, but what does the text actually say? So when we go to the Gospel of John chapter 6 and concepts like the Eucharist to put forward, how do we prefer to respond to that well when someone if you're using <clears throat> if you're using an early church father as a basis for affirming a later doctrine that is later disputed by the reformers the the thing that I, I mean like you said what we always go back to is that well even if you can construe a statement from an early church father that contradicts modern evangelical teaching as opposed to catholic teaching we we always go back to the scriptures because that predates them <laughs> because just because an early church father makes a statement that seems to and this is very important seems to coincide with an op an opposing doctrine does not mean that first that early church father actually believed what they said in the same sense that modern day Roman Catholics do you know like for example like you said the tra the doctrine of transubstantiation wasn't really formulated until like the 16th century in its current form. Yeah, there were people like Origen that gave it more flesh, pun intended, but the idea of the Catholic Mass transforming these substances, yeah. as opposed to them just referring to it in remembrance, like Scripture, and we would also affirm as saying, that's where it goes too far. We still have to go back to the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures teach? Uh, Roman Catholics will often go to tradition and say, well, it was tradition that was passed on. Well, what do you do when tradition contradicts Scripture? If Scripture is plain, and that's where you get the five reform solas, uh, grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, uh, yeah, Christ alone, faith alone, <laughs> Scripture alone, the glory of God alone, Christ alone. Yeah, so the idea is that solo, which one did you... Uh, faith alone, sola fide, sola gratia, meaning grace alone, yeah, sola Christus, grace alone. sola Christo, uh, yeah. uh, meaning that, and the reason they added that one, or the reason that was there was because there was so many sacramental and priestly duties that would provide salvation, you know, mediation between humans and God. So it wasn't that there is only one mediator between humans and God, and that is Jesus, which is what sola Christus means, is that, no, wait a minute, there's only one mediator between humanity and God, and that is Jesus. <clears throat> These elaborate priestly functions were putting other human beings as mediators between humanity and God. 
And so one of the big pushes to combat that was that, no, through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, the scripture alone. And then the last one was... um, Solideo Gloria, the glory yeah, of God. Yeah, and then finally, to the and that one is a little different than the first four, but uh, uh, sola, uh, to, yeah, the, the, to the glory of God and nothing else. And so <clears throat> those key uh, disputes were because, as humanity is often, often does, we overly spiritualize and create a works mentality. Human beings, by nature, want to get credit for their good deeds and so they create religious systems where a person if i just go through these steps if i follow this ritual and this is true of most world religions you go you go through it's all very works based and when something comes along and says no no it's by god's mercy and grace through faith through trusting oh wait a minute i i want to dictate myself how i uh, merit my own salvation and so that's the big dispute and the other thing too is, a, a, it was a good question, by the way. Um, let's see who was the person. David. David, yeah. <clears throat> Just because Irenaeus or some of the early church fathers may have quoted and referred to the the Last Supper, and even the Eucharist. Remember that the word Eucharist isn't a Catholic term. Eucharist simply means thanksgiving in the original language. So the Lord's table is about giving thanks. And when Jesus did this, he said, do this in remembrance of me. So when, as often as you eat this bread, as often as you drink from this cup, do this in remembrance of me. He gave thanks. So it's the Eucharist isn't a, a Catholic concept. It is just simply means thanksgiving. And when <clears throat> some of the early church fathers were dealing with this, they were dealing with Gnostic teachings. Gnostics, uh, docetism was the belief that all n- matter all physical things were evil. So because they were combating this doctrine, they would quote the Last Supper saying, well, wait a minute, if all matter is evil, oh, and by the way, Docetism also denied that Jesus had come back in the flesh. This is why First John says that the, the spirit of the Antichrist is those who deny that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. That was Gnostic teaching. Jesus didn't come back in the didn't come in the flesh. He came in. He's only spiritual. <laughs> he he also said the spiritual. God of Israel was evil because he created a material world, and that Jesus was a rebel, rogue god from him. Yeah, and so when you these early church fathers are still dealing with Gnostic, uh, specifically Docetism, this idea that all matter is evil, and so they quote the Lord's Supper saying, "Well, wait a minute. Why is it that Jesus would say?" This is my body, referring to the physical things. And, and as you quoted, I can go through and look up some of the responses. Like here's uh, Tertullian, who was a next generation after Arrhenius. Uh, he says, uh, having taken the bread and given it to his disciples, Jesus made it his own body by saying, this is my body. That is the symbol of my body. There could not have been a symbol, however, unless there was first a true body. An empty thing or phantom is incapable of a symbol. He likewise, when mentioning the cup and making a new covenant to be sealed in his blood, affirms the reality of his body, for no blood can belong to a body that is not a body of flesh. So this is Tertullian arguing against the Marcians, who are Gnostic heretics. So you have to read 
the early church fathers in their historical context of what why are they saying what they're saying to whom are they saying it what is the background of what they're saying if you remove those things out of even their historical context and say well see this sounds a lot like what roman catholics teach the doctrine of transubstantiation well the bible doesn't affirm that and their argument is simply that well the matter is not evil otherwise jesus would not use physical created things to illustrate or to represent his body so here you have tertullian literally saying that Jesus intended to use the elements as a symbol for his body, just as when Jesus in John 6 concluded the disciples were bewildered. Wait a minute, what do you mean no one can <laughs> enter into the kingdom of heaven unless they eat your body and drink your flesh, uh, drink your blood? I, that, that doesn't make any sense. And then they come and take him aside, and they're like, this was very difficult to hear. You're basically saying we have to be zombies and vampires in order to go to heaven. And he says, no, no, the words I speak to you are spirit, meaning symbolic. I'm trying to explain to you that I am the bread of life, meaning that I, you cannot live without me. Man will, live by bread, will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I am the logos, the word. So he's saying that everything I'm communicating to you in this message, I'm speaking in a symbolic sense so that the, those who will not believe, not cannot believe, but will not believe, is a mystery to them but i'm explaining it to you that these words are spiritual words and you see that same kind of affirmation in the early church fathers and also that physical eating if said in a spiritual sense doesn't mean physically eating it is taking something in we see this in ezekiel 3 and in revelation chapter i want to say 10 where the apostle john and the prophet ezekiel both are commanded to eat a scroll and then told to prophesy now it doesn't mean that they you know took out their fork and knife and started trying to down unpalatable paper or papyri it was to note you're taking this in as a part of yourself in this case of belief you're going to share something with these people you first need to receive it so if we're called to share the gospel and it's noting in john chapter 6 and verse 62 it notes that does this offend you what then if you should see the son of man ascend where he was before it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing those traditions and the modern handling of it and i say modern loosely but those kind of handlings of it would say the flesh profits everything the flesh profits eternally mm -hmm. but they would have to insist on a tradition yeah. because their authority is based in man not in scripture and that's where the divisions come from. So if we're talking to someone who holds to these traditions, you can show them scripture, and if their authority is rather in men and in history rather than the actual basis those things were founded upon, supposedly, the question then remains, and this is the ongoing one, is the Roman Catholic Church a false church with true teachings, or is it a true church that has some false teachings? I'm not sure how the latter would function, but here's the issue. You have to take it on a person-by-person -person basis. If they're going to argue church father said this, therefore that settles it, you've shown where their authority is, and that's, of course, not just logically fallacious, but that's heretical <laughs> as far as biblical truth is concerned. Yeah, so. and, and it's not only important to make sure that when you use a church father's quote to affirm a modern version of a doctrine using the same words, like words like Eucharist, this is my body, this is my blood. It's not only important to interpret them in their historical context as well, but it's also important to allow the church fathers to actually explain their understanding of the Lord's table in the first place. For example, DDK, or I don't know if, you, if I'm saying that one right. DDK, is that right? Did I say that? 
they, yeah, it refers to the Lord's table as spiritual food. This was uh, in the late first century, early second century. Justin Martyr said that uh, the bread which our Christ gave us to offer in remembrance of the body which he assured for the sake of those who believe in him, for whom he also severed also to the cup which he taught us to offer in the Eucharist. Again, that just means the table of thanksgiving, not the doctrine of transubstantiation. Okay, the Greek word Eucharist existed long before the doctrine did. <laughs> so, in, in in commemoration of His blood, commemoration is the not the same as transubstantiation. The transformation of the elements, where only a priest, only a priest, can take ordinary bread and ordinary wine and actually transubstantiate them into the literal body and the literal blood of Christ. That part of the doctrine you do not see affirmed. That understanding you do not see affirmed in the early church fathers. You see quite the opposite. Here's Clement of Alexandria. The scripture accordingly has named wine the symbol of the sacred blood, origin. Similarly noted, we have a symbol of gratitude to God in the bread which we call the Eucharist, which is the table of thanksgiving. So again, and we can go on and on with several other quotations, but you know, as Sean said, the, the really the important point is that why did they say the things they said about the Lord's table? What was the historical context of that early church father saying what they said? And <clears throat> let's allow them to actually explain in full their understanding of the Lord's table, rather than extrapolating a, a simple sentence and saying, that wording sounds, see, Eucharist. That's what we're saying in the Catholic Mass. Because remember, the Catholic Mass is not about going to church. Church is about the Mass, the the ceremony of transubstantiating the elements into the literal body and the literal blood is the purpose of the Mass. And the purpose of the Mass is to offer people literal salvation. Because in Roman Catholicism, you do not have the doctrine, as we as evangelicals or reformers, you might say, uh, Protestants, do not believe in the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus. They believe in the impartation, meaning Jesus died so that you could live a holy life. He did not die so that you could have covered over you the righteousness of Jesus. He's just giving you the ability to live a righteous life. Therefore, every time you sin, you must confess and you must re-sacrifice Jesus over and over again to repay for new sin because his death only forgives you of past sin but you are not righteous in god's sight you're given the ability to be righteous that's a huge fundamental gospel difference between orthodox roman catholicism and you know what i would say is orthodox christianity yep 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 thank you david thank you for your question hope that helps you along with that. We appreciate you sending your question in to our email address, questions for hope at gmail.com. I have a question from DJ. Uh, how does the church view or what are the views of schizophrenia? Uh, my cousin has had it for f coming up on four years. I tend to keep my distance because he is triggered by my presence. But uh, mm -hmm. I mean, we can kind of broaden keep it to <laughs> mental, like mental health issues. What is a biblical view? I know some people may say it's possession you know so well, you, you change the question and that's what's important they say what's the church's view i don't care <laughs> there's a lot of superstitious and uh, culturally mm -hmm. influenced people who say oh they they hear voices that can't be anything but demonic uh, do you hear voices when you're sleeping 
Because that's what schizophrenia is. The only difference is you're awake because of a narrowing of the brain, usually caused either by birth defects or some sort of genetic issue. If we're going to look at, you know, just scientific observations about what schizophrenia is, the visual hallucinations you see when you dream, rapid eye movement, is that. That's all they're experiencing. The problem is how that influences someone's perceptions of what's going on around them varies from person to person based on their coping mechanisms. Now let's just get back to the Bible. Is or are mental disorders demonic possession? And the answer is no. The same reason why certain diseases can have common symptoms, but a very different cure. And when we're dealing with people who have legitimate struggles with certain things, but we think that every single uh, issue is through <clears throat> exorcism, then it's going to be the same kind of lens you view when the only tool in your tool chest is a hammer. You're going to think that every problem is a nail. So what is the actual issue here? We live in a fallen sinful world where just like physical deformities externally can take place, that's no more a sign of demonic influence over them than any internal struggles or perceptions and issues. When people argue, well, they had a bad upbringing as to justify or excuse some criminal behavior, it no more excuses their actions from a biblical worldview because all men will answer for their actions before God. If you say, well, oh, they were high at the time, they didn't know what they were doing. Well, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. He'll take all things into consideration, but the fact of the matter is that person was still killed in a drunk driving accident. And that's what needs to be dealt with, not just according to the law that represents God and has not been given the sword in vain, but also to the God who created those things that were then abused. And that's what they'll be held morally culpable for. So when we say, oh, this person heard the voices and just had to assault that person, again, speaking from experience as someone who was formally diagnosed schizophrenic, that's not how that works. But if, on the other hand, you note your patterns of life, you know when you're going into an episode when, say, for instance, you know you're going to be a danger to those around you, if you don't learn to spot those things, it would be just as much neglecting yourself and your patterns of life if you had personality defects or anger issues and knowingly put yourself in a situation where you'd get into a fight. So here's the point. Scripturally, there are three sources of the bad things that we're going to deal with both internally and externally in life. This is in 1 John chapter 2 and noting these three things are the world, the world's passing away, the flesh, are, um, this world, and the devil. Mm -hmm. People think that one-third of that is 100% of the issue. The other issue is our environment a world that cultivates and justifies evil by calling it good. And Isaiah had a very strong statement to say against that. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Yeah. And our flesh, the fact that we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it, regardless of whether it's against God's nature or not, the definition of sin. So when we're talking to or about the topic of mental disorders, someone who's depressed isn't de demon-possessed by sadness. They could be sad. It could be circumstances like the loss of a loved one or a job or some other factor that this world's trying to influence them into thinking. It could be something that they were born with. It could be just the fact that they're in their flesh and they need to readjust their perspective rather than on themselves, but onto God and others. It's just better to give than receive. But if on the other hand, you also note the possibility of the demonic, it's the easiest of the possibilities to narrow down. 
if this person is in fact possessed, then you can solve it literally by saying, well, in the name of Jesus, get out. And if they don't look, and this is as someone who's been a part of three exorcisms in his very short pastoral career, two of which were legitimate, one was just someone tweaking off of drugs, <laughs> they will look like they've been hit in the face with a brick. It's almost funny now that I remember it, but the point being made is just that. If they don't respond in the name of Jesus, then it's something happening biologically, and biological problems can have biological or sociological even, according to counseling and so forth, solutions. So don't assume everything is a demon, because that's just trying to remove personal responsibility, which is just as much sinful as the person's actions you're trying to avoid. If they are still trying to form their coping mechanisms, and again, I understand completely where they're coming from, their presence triggers you, I don't know what story there is behind that, and I won't ask on air, but the idea of being sensitive to people's sensitivities would be just as true if they had schizophrenia or not. It's just saying, look, I just can't deal with you right now. You don't have to have a mental disorder to just set boundaries with people and know your own struggles. That's the point. It doesn't mean that you're demonically possessed. It doesn't mean that you're angel possessed and they're demonic and they don't like you. Don't go the route of the, you know, Jonathan Kahn's and Michael Heiser's and think that everything has to be centered around the demon. Focus on the person of Jesus and understand that in your struggles, internal or external, he can be the solution. And it's something that someone with a mental disorder, again, speaking from experience, has almost more advantages over the person who just struggles with the flesh in an external sense. Because I guarantee you, if I weren't holding on to Jesus with both hands, if I didn't have a love for God's word that made sure everything that I see, think, and hear from others isn't examined and re-examined, First of all, I'd be a poor specimen on this program and environment. Secondly, I'd be a very poor specimen functionally. It could be just God's way of putting me on a short leash, and I don't hold them against it. I'm just functioning in spite of it. This is the point. Be sensitive to their sensitivities. Don't think that every issue is a demon. And biblically, we understand that there is a fine line between someone needing an exorcism, someone needing a meal or a nap, and someone who's in need of just time. All of these things can be true, mental disorder or not. So if we're narrowing down the actual issues, if the absurd has been eliminated, well, then let's just go with yeah. the probable. Yeah, being that the Bible is not a medical textbook, um, you know, diagnosing every single physical ailment and distinguishing those from spiritual, we're sort of left in the dark in the sense and but one thing that that we can affirm is that the mind and the brain are separate we are dual dualists meaning we believe in the physical and the spiritual nature of every human being and just like a driver cannot get from point a to point b if the car is broken so can a person struggle if the brain is damaged and science can to a certain degree detect brain damage and when we can physically diagnose damage to the brain <clears throat> it does change a person's behavior it limits the soul from its ability to function optimally so avoid the extremes uh what people think about schizophrenia as sean said doesn't really matter the important thing is that we cannot take every mental health issue and simply and wholly make it a physical 
a disease. That's one problem is the Bible talks about, you know, not fearing. It talks about renewing your mind. You know, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says we God has not given us a spirit of fear. Uh, so on and, and there are so many passages talk about how we can actually experience positive mental health by focusing on truth. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but think as to have sound judgment. So there is a lot of mental health encouragement in the Bible. And so one natural thing to do is to take every single kind of depression, every single kind of struggle and diagnose it as a disease. Well, that's too far on the naturalistic side. There is a spiritual component to us. And as a man thinketh, so he is. So you have to be very careful to over-naturalize the human body. On the other side, it's very easy for Christians to over-spiritualize everything. Oh my gosh, I'm, I have a headache. There must be a demon. Uh, my car won't start. There must be a demon. I'm going to pray the demon out of the car engine. And so avoid those two extremes of a demon behind every single mental health issue. There are physical components at times. At the same time, to simply make it a physical, natural diagnosis where you just need to get a drug or surgery and there's nothing you can help, that there's no spiritual component. Well, no, there is a spiritual component. We're, we're dualists. We are both body and we're material and immaterial. So just keep that in mind when you think about these issues is what I would say. Mm, very good. Thank you. Um, DJ, yes, thank you for that question. We appreciate you being part of the show. Sorry to hear that situation with, uh, with your, uh, your cousin. Um, we'll be praying for you in that, but I hope that helps you out. We have a question <coughs> from Robert. Uh, good evening, brethren, and shalom. Shalom to you also. So my question is about when Satan is bound for a thousand years. I went through an in-depth study of Revelation, and people will still sin during the thousand-year reign of Christ, if I'm correct. Correct. How will people still sin if Satan is bound for a thousand years? Will there still be those principalities and powers in the heavenlies that will influence people to sin, or will it just still be the sin nature that is in man that causes people to sin in the in the thousand-year millennium? Just wanted to hear a biblical explanation. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you, Robert, for your question today. Yeah, my understanding is that the thousand-year reign, sin is removed, and that the nations are clean. Jesus is Lord. Uh, Pastor Scott and I had a kind of a very brief exchange about this, and I, I got the impression that that uh, all things are new at that very moment. When Jesus comes back, it's all new. And there may be those who, uh, well, there's, I mean, there's the rest, all things are made new in the sense that uh, Jesus is reigning in, in, on the throne, but um, it's not until the end of the thousand years when Satan is released that, uh, that he then deceives the nations, or, or is there... Uh, good reason to think that there is a a time of ha still people having their own sin natures in the in the thousand year reign. Yeah, um, Isaiah sixty five would be the passage to go to in regards to our sinful nature still being intact, although the demonic authorities will not be enforcing that. Uh, let me read verse seventeen to start. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now we stop. Like, let me read the next verse as well. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. So we look at that and we look at Revelation 21 and we see new heavens, new earth, no crying. That sounds like 
not the thousand-year reign of Christ. That sounds like the new heavens and new earth, the new creation, it says right there. And we note that reading of the text and go, okay, so far so good, but the chapter ain't over yet. So what's being talked about? Go to verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner won't exist. Now, notes this. The sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. And then it goes on to note they won't have property disputes, they won't have farming disputes, they won't mm. uh, have uh, foreign invaders and so forth. It notes first, the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, as opposed to the others. My elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, not bring forth children for trouble. They shall be descendants of the blessed of the Lord, their offspring with them. And it goes on to note their relationship with God will even impact the environment. Uh, it makes uh, references to Isaiah 11 and so forth, this Eden-like state. So much like with what we finished talking about on our Wednesday night services, the Millennial Temple, there's a lot of foreshadowings of the new heavens and the new earth, but still a thousand years before that's going to be cultivated. Do we see a beautiful creation, absolutely. Do we see as close to heaven as this earth will ever get? Absolutely. Christ will be there with us. He'll be walking with us, just like at the time of Eden. Mm -hmm. But it notes that there is still an existence, and there's references to this in Ezekiel as well, existence of swamplands and thorns and briars and so forth, uh, legacies of the battles that were fought during the tribulation and reminders of a world apart from Christ to those who will be living at this time. All these things will still be preserved because everything's still not made new in the Revelation 21 sense. But if we look at Isaiah 65, 20 and note that there will be sinners who will die at 100 years old and they will be in an accursed state, mm -hmm. non-existent people aren't dying. These are real people. Non-existent moral decisions aren't being made. There are still people quantified as sinners. There's, and you've been through this, I'll repeat it for the sake of the audience, uh, the people who take the premillennial dispensationalist Zionist perspective on the end times, a very literal reading of the end times that believe these things are still in the future, position that we hold, by the way. Uh, the idea is that those who physically, physically survive the tribulation will not be given glorified bodies yet. They will physically go on to live through the, tr the uh, millennium, as the passage itself says, my people shall live as old as trees. They'll live through the whole thousand-year reign, because trees also known to do that. It'll also note that they'll be able to, not having glorified bodies, have offspring. Because we know that in the resurrection, when Jesus was referencing that in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20, I believe, he noted they neither marry or given in marriage. They're like the angels, which are not reproductive beings. They're not sexual entities, fallen or righteous. So the idea of these people producing and repopulating the world from their, I guess, achievement, <laughs> you could call it grace, I'd prefer, of surviving the tribulation, their kids will still have to come to decisions. Now, there will be righteous judgment, there will be righteous law, there will be righteous leadership, and there will be a righteous environment. But it notes that if the world and the devil, a la Revelation 21 through 3, are not a factor anymore, that this world is going to be like Eden. This world is going to be run by people who would not be able to qualify in politics today, right? All of this will be intact, but what's still left? 
go again to first john chapter 2 the flesh there will still be fallen sinful people who have to make their own decisions about Jesus, and it will be marked by the fact as to whether or not, and that's how I'm handling Isaiah 65, whether or not they live past 100. So these generations will ultimately be marked by that point. They will be able to age, but they'll only be considered kids because the median age now is just not. We have a perfect environment, so we're not going to obviously have the same mutation issues. How the presence of Christ will impact that scientifically we could examine later. But the, that's the general handling of it from this perspective. The preterists, the ones that believe this is all fulfilled, is just noting the eternal state. They wouldn't make a distinction between the millennium and the uh, new creation. The spiritist view is just noting the eternal reality of us living forever with the Lord. And so they just transpose this all into heaven, not really anything even on this earth. You'd have to talk to him specifically. It's very inconsistent. And then, of course, the perspective of just like, you know, it'll all pan out. They wouldn't even touch Isaiah, let alone Revelation. So the idea of sinful fallen human beings still during the millennium, the idea isn't that that law won't be enforced. That's the majority of problems in the world today. It's not that we have laws, it's that they're being applied inconsistently. Uh, there were reports of uh, riots happening in Muslim countries because whenever, let's not even go to Muslim countries, Muslim counties like Dearborn, Michigan, you know how they persecute Christians there? Mm -hmm. They uh, have these Arab festivals and stuff, and three people I know uh, got victim to this. They would say, well, we can't enforce in United States law that you're not allowed to proselytize with Muslims. That's under religious liberty. But we can... Uh, enforce and legislate municipal law and saying that during festivals you're not allowed to hand out tracts and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Now that can be for a variety of reasons, but the law passed. So when they do their Arab festivals and stuff, all the Dawa groups, that's the Muslim form of evangelism, will be handing out information and the police who are also Muslims or Muslim sympathizers themselves will just turn a blind eye and say, oh well whatever. I know it's illegal, but it's not my problem. Then, and this is the diabolical side of it, Muslims will ask Christians, this is a true story, will ask Christians, can I see that book you're holding there? I want to show you where that is in Jesus. They'll take a picture of the Christian handing his Bible to the Muslim and then get them arrested. So the problem hmm. with ma majority of societies today isn't unjust laws. That can be, in the case of Sharia, is that they're not being enforced. That won't be the case in the millennium. When we look at a fallen environment and note the world influencing and encouraging, you know, you turn on your um, YouTube page or whatever, and then there's all these really crude ads and stuff that are just putting these ideas in your head you wish weren't there. Not going to be tolerated during the thousand-year reign. But what's still going to be a factor? Those who haven't received resurrection bodies and those not belonging to Jesus and literally having him there to sort things out they will still have to come to terms with whether or not they want the Holy Spirit, and that will be marked by that 100-year um, age limit of the time they'll be allowed to make up their mind. And that is, of course, noting Isaiah 65:20 as a literal description, which I think it is. I would notice a distinction between Revelation 21 because of more context. Mm -hmm. And that's my handling of the passage, and if you disagree, I don't think it's a fellowship issue. That's just my conclusion. Yeah, that so. makes sense. Because if there are there are those who die in Christ before the before the rapture uh -huh. and they get rap they get they meet the Lord in the air, but 
Revelation talks about those who are resurrected after the thousand years. So there's multiple resurrections and deaths. Uh, so it's the unrighteous ones. <clears throat> and then those who survive the tribulation period see Jesus coming, but they're not the ones who are caught up with the Lord in the air during the rapture. So they still have a sin nature, and we don't need Satan to cause us to sin. He's just one of the <laughs> reasons why we get deceived and sin. Yeah. We can do that all by ourselves. So that makes sense that there are those who have been resurrected when Jesus comes back. Uh, well, he raptures them seven years of tribulation when we are with him in the air, and then he comes with it. We come with him. And those um, who physically died in Christ will return us with him as well. We see that in Revelation 20. Right, and then and so those who uh, beat their weapons into plows and, and so on, they're still sinners in the sense that they're human beings with a sinful nature. They've not been given glorified bodies. Uh, however, at the end of that thousand-year reign, when the nations get repopulated, uh, huge amount. Satan will now deceive the nations, and they will gather together around the people of God's people in His camp, which will be probably Israel. And uh, that's just insane to even comprehend. But that makes that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that answer. That helped me help me understand that a lot better. I, I look at the way I live my life sometimes, and I don't understand it. But that's know, right? the, the the Thanos snap. I think will speak yeah, for itself yeah. when finally the world's last <clears throat> display of rebellion will be. Right. Not tolerated, but dealt with. Right, so. right. Yeah, great question, Robert. Thank you for that. hope that helps you. Thank you for, for being part of the show today. Yeah. Question from Dwayne. Uh, is it okay to cut someone out of your life if they hurt you or are annoying you? <laughs> <laughs> it depends. It depends a lot. There are a lot of principles at play. I mean, David here annoys me quite a bit. Yeah, you haven't, <laughs> you haven't cut me out yet. So Not yet. Must no. try harder. You must try harder. <laughs> Well, when it comes to, well, if someone who annoys you, that that would be a very selfish reason to cut them out of your life. It depends on what you mean by cut out of your life. So there are two principles at play, I think, that you should always keep in mind. One would be <clears throat> the concept of forgiveness. Peter said, had asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And that's in and, the same day for the same issue. Yeah. Uh, and Jesus says, basically infinity, 70 times 7. In other words, there is no limit um, to how many times. And then he goes on to give this parable of this person who has forgiven a debt and then turns around and throws another one who owes him a debt into prison. And Jesus basically explains how horrible that is and that if you cannot forgive your brother, then God cannot forgive you. So there's that principle on the one hand. So If you annoy God and they annoy you, yeah. but God's patient with you, shouldn't you be patient with them? Yeah, and I would be very careful to just cut people out of your lives because they bother you or they keep wronging you. But, but there is something to be said about forgiveness, though, that I think probably requires a little clarification. Forgiveness, in, in my estimation, is a, is a response to uh, um, a repentant heart or repentant attitude. And so if someone is, because um, so that's one principle, is for 70 times 7. You should not cut them out of your life if they keep saying, oh, I'm sorry, I keep messing up. Uh, you keep forgiving them, because that's what Jesus does for us. So we give them that attitude. But at the same time, uh, Paul gives us this principle uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, um, <clears throat> talking about, uh, he's talking about sexual sin, and then he goes on to uh, clarify. Let me pick, bring it up here. While he you're says, doing that, oh, go ahead. He says, uh, 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate any with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or, or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but expel the wicked person from among you. So in other words, <clears throat> be very careful who you fellowship with. I've experienced this in my own life where I wasn't careful, and I thought, oh, I'm going to influence this person more than they'll influence me. And the, the exact opposite took place. Um, sometimes salt can lose its saltiness, and I experienced that firsthand where I wasn't careful. It's one thing to forgive someone who offends you or does something that hurts you, but it's another thing to tolerate someone who is living an ungodly life who claims to be a believer. So balancing those two principles, I think, are very important. Is this person claiming to be a believer, and are they living a godless, immoral lifestyle? The Bible says you confront them. If they don't listen, you take a second. Yeah. If they don't listen to them, you bring them before the church, and then you cease fellowship. That doesn't mean you can't see them for coffee and say, how are you doing? But you end Kodania fellowship. You end the bond of brotherhood because they are living a godless lifestyle and they're claiming to be a believer. However, if it's a repentant believer, a weak brother, someone who struggles, stumbles, has, you know, behavioral attitude problems, but they keep saying, oh man, I'm sorry about that. You know what? 70 times seven, because that's what the Lord does for us. Mm, very good. Dwayne, thank you for that question. We're out of time for today. We'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. Thank you guys. See you then. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.